Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello and welcome to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined today by Noah. Hi, y'all. And Lou. Hey, guys. Now, the year 2020 has derailed a lot of traditions, but there is one tradition that we have successfully managed to keep alive for, let's see, a second year running. This is the second annual Punching Out Genius Awards, where we take a moment to celebrate the bosses and the leaders in our society who have really gone above and beyond when it comes to finding ways to make their workers miserable. They have innovated, they have created new synergies, and they have been, in short, geniuses. Before we get started with any categories, would, would the two of you like to talk about you know, what we have in store for the listeners? You know, What makes someone a genius? Lou and I were on an episode a long time ago called The Cult of the Genius, and we discussed how in our society we have this, this element where we worship certain individuals as being uh, almost superhuman just for the – you know, the, the, the miracle of like reinventing the bus. <laughs> and so that particular person will not be, I don't think, awarded this year. Somehow is, he's avoided this two years in a row, but yes. yes. Which may be an oversight, but that's okay. I honestly think he would like ask to be on the show to receive it, <laughs> knowing him. But the point is, um, I think the important part for me is, is not just what they do, but the fact that people go out of their way to talk about how great they are. And in some of our cases, I think you're going to see that more than others. But it is very important to remember that these are people that, um, to use the Jungian term, people cape for them. I have literally never heard that term before. Well, it's a Jungian term. You wouldn't have. It's true. I'm old. Without further ado, I, I think that's very well put. We should start with... Our first category, this has been obviously an election year. Politics has been at the forefront of many of our minds, you know, over the course of the past 12 months, these interminable 12 months. And this year has felt so long that we have almost forgotten that in the early part of it, Michael Bloomberg ran for president. It didn't go well for him as far as, you know, him personally winning the Democratic nomination goes, though I'm not sure he's too displeased with the result. But we have to take a moment to acknowledge him as a runner-up in the category of public service, I think is what we would call it, because his campaign, in its brief, expensive failure to win anything larger than American Samoa, had made these big promises to his army of staff some of whom were working against his campaign from the inside and solely there to cash a check, that he would pay their health care and give them a wage through the year, regardless of how far his campaign went. And when his campaign ended, those promises proved to be um, not true. 
he was sued by many campaign staffers for reneging on this promise to offer them health care, you know, through the year, a year that happened to involve a global pandemic. Here's the thing. According to the link you sent us, not only did he promise this to an army of staff, promises how that staff became an army in the first place. Yes. So he, he promised them this. And he promised, and this was uh, particularly funny, he promised that if he didn't get the nomination, he would turn his campaign into an independent operation on behalf of the Democratic Party, which also did not happen. So he massively overpromised, massively underdelivered, and in a way that, as we just love to see on the Genius Awards, I mean, this is this is real veteran talent, Michael Bloomberg, coming through here. He completely uh, took advantage of these people and tried to get himself off the hook. And I think the ultimate resolution is that they would cover COBRA, the insurance you get when you're not employed or be, when you're between jobs. Uh, they would cover that through November. So that, that you know, it's something, I suppose. It's, it's not something his staffer should have had to sue him for, given that he promised they would receive health insurance. But it is a happy ending by the standards of 2020. It's also just not surprising. I mean, every time we hear about some business going under or anything like that, the the first thing that's cut is employee compensation and pensions and everything like that. So, you know, it's just a different flavor. It's a more political flavor for 2020. Um, very, very on brand for the year. And you, you really got to commend the guy. Um, a plus plus effort there, my dude. That's right. Michael Bloomberg has had a very consistent career in this sort of thing. And we're just glad to see that he can late in his career, he can still do it. He's still showing the same pop he's always had. Real Hall of Famer there. Moving on from Bloomberg, we have another runner up in this category, also from the state of New York. Um, It's our governor, Andrew Cuomo. Hometown boy. Love to see it. Who wrote a book detailing his success over the COVID-19 pandemic that was published, was it in August? July? Late summer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Can, can we talk about the, like, I'm sorry, this might be the first documented case, 84-point air quotes around success in that sentence? Yes. Yes. His book may have been premature at, at the very even at the time, he was writing as the governor of the state that had the most deaths from COVID-19, um, a fact that propelled him to national stardom because it meant he was on TV every day. And we really couldn't have this award ceremony without taking a moment to acknowledge him, even if he is not the winner in a very crowded category. It, it was very difficult choosing the winner this year, well, I will say. Yeah, and you have to say, especially with Cuomo doing that extra special effort to win this year by cutting Medicaid and Medicare in the middle of a pandemic when thousands and thousands of people are dying. Like, that's, that is uh, genius it's, in its truest sense. He is a five-tool genius. I mean, he he cut Medicare and Medicaid. He junked bail reform. I remember that. And he got the assembly to join him on that one. He cut a tax on yachts, was it, in in one of those late-night sessions? Sounds about right, yes. Yeah, I think it was yachts, yeah. I I think my particular favorite Cuomo, you know, the, the little garnish to the year for me was the way that when essential workers, of which I am one, were, were told these are the states you can go to. 
So initially, it was just the tri-state area, uh, New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut. And within a day, Pennsylvania had been added. Within two days, Massachusetts. Within like a week, Vermont. So there was just this weird increasing sphere of Andrew Cuomo influence where his benevolent mercy and wisdom would protect you from COVID if you traveled out of state, but only there. You know, not Michigan and not Ohio, but Pennsylvania was fine and, and all of that. I mean, really, he, he, he maybe spent more energy than anyone ever has in uh, this year's Genius Award campaign. And we're just so very sad that we couldn't awarded to somebody who I think in any other year would have deserved it. I, I think his genius more than anything is in recognizing the ways in which it's the appearance of being serious that matters to the public. It's hygiene theater. You know, yeah. it's put imposing curfews that make you make it look like you're doing something without really impacting how the virus spreads during the 16 other hours of the day. Right. That's right. And with this orange zone, red zone stuff, whatever, like every time he he's like, oh, yeah, we're going to change it. I'm going to talk about it Monday. Like he keeps pushing off, not shutting things down and saying, well, you can't can't go to restaurants in this uh, whatever distance part of Rochester, the gritty shape or whatever it was. I think one one thing that we have to acknowledge with Cuomo is we've been talking about all the all the, you know, talent that he brings to the table. But the zone thing, Lou, you're absolutely right. I mean, that's him hearkening back to the early aughts, you know, when the terror alert level just never went above, uh, what was it, yellow, if the Democrats were doing well in polling averages. Cuomo really, he remembered what his, uh, uh, his predecessors have done and uh, really took it to the next level this year. I'm particularly impressed by the fact that he kept changing school metrics, like what uh, what what percentage had to happen or how many they had to test. I'm particularly impressed by the fact that he kept announcing this, you know, at noon in the middle of the school day. It's a good bet. I, I'm I'm glad Noah that you mentioned the uh, early 2000s uh, terrorism alert era of American politics because our winner really owes his career to that era. We're talking, of course, about Rudy Giuliani, the president's lawyer. Now, it may seem hard to squeeze him into a show about work, but we have found a way. We have found many ways. So we should be clear, first of all, because I don't know if we ever officially mentioned the category. We are awarding Rudolph Giuliani, whose middle name I have suddenly and unaccountably forgotten, with a Lifetime Achievement Award as a punching out genius. And so there are many, many reasons to look into. In just the year 2020, he gave us some of his best moments. For example, if you want to talk about work, Rudy Giuliani successfully created what I believe to be at this point three or four dozen jobs for other lawyers who could help the Trump campaign make something approaching a coherent legal argument instead of something that, and I'm reading here from The Nation has an article by John Nichols on November 24th, 2020. It's called Rudy Giuliani went to court and made a compelling argument for his own disbarment. (laughs) And uh, in this, it mentions that 
Republican federal judge Matthew Ran said that this claim, like Frankenstein's monster, has been haphazardly stitched together, and he also described Rudy Giuliani himself as unhinged, and and said that the Trump campaign has not pled, and I quote, a cognizable theory or cognizable. Either way, that's the kind of year that that Rudy Giuliani had, he didn't even seem to be paying attention to the fact that he was in contention for a genius award. But (laughs) by God, has he earned it? You say that's the kind of year he's had. But really, what we're talking about is a month and a half. We are talking about a month and a half that is on a different level. He's Mr. November. (laughs) (laughs) Because while I have no doubt that much of his pre-election antics were worthy of discussion, he has really risen to the occasion of the Genius Awards over just the last month since Election Day when he has led the president's, whatever you want to call it, charge to get the election results overturned. He has done so in ways that have been um, funny and humiliating and uh, very entertaining. And he he uh, has just done it with such whatever the opposite of grace is. It's amazing. Honestly, to me, he could have won on four seasons uh, total landscape by himself just uh, with that action. That That's the kind of play you remember 50 years from now that the Rudy Giuliani highlight reel for the uh, genius retrospective. I mean – that's going to be that's going to get replayed like three times there and and making every single subordinate you have commit to that location it's the thing that dreams are made of honestly i'm sure he's secure he's he's finally glad he's secure in the knowledge that he used to be america's mayor but now he's america's genius <laughs> i was going to make the comment that his efforts this past year reminded me of like a Sasha Baron Cohen character, you know, just sort of mucking things up. <laughs> and then I remembered he was in Rudy Giuliani yep. has had, you know, contact with Sasha Baron Cohen this year. Yes. Which, which he was in, in the new Borat movie, was it? Yeah. Yes. And he had contact with himself during that Borat movie too. Uh, how any sane person can honestly take that man seriously is beyond me. But I guess that's exactly what the Genius Awards are for. That's right. We're we're treating him with the exact amount of seriousness that he deserves. He and his hair dye, which <laughs> I, I in, in case you're not familiar with that, this is a man who went to a press conference in, in public. And whether because of haste or heat or whatever was going on. Uh, the man's hair dye just started running on camera. It it almost looked like he too had been stitched together like Frankenstein's monster for a second there. And then he capped off the year, of course, by uh, contracting the coronavirus. So Rudy just, you know, some people, they, they build their their case for genius, for lifetime achievement, for genius of the year, whatever you want to call it. They build that case over several months patiently and so on. Some of these guys, some of these geniuses are much more about explosive performance. And that's really what we got out of Rudy this year. I mean, we knew that he was capable of this. Some of us, all the way since 2001. But uh, we've now found out really, finally, at long last, the kind of metal 
that uh, Rudy Giuliani has. Really, the Sandy Koufax of geniuses. Not great longevity, but putting real brilliance into a few short periods. I was going to go for a Reggie Jackson, given that it's New York and, you know, Mr. November, but sure, let's go with that. Also, I would like to remind, because I do know we have a few listeners who are not New Yorkers and might be a little bit annoyed by the dominance of New York State in uh, this category. Um, Actually, you know what? I take that back because anything I was going to say after that is probably unprintable or unputable on the radio. But I think that's the attitude I'm supposed to affect at that point. <laughs> it's been a year for New York. Um, if ever a state could win a Genius Award, we've tried. We really we, have. We've put out a lot of great characters into this year's national story. Not the least of which has been the president. Um, <laughs> that's right. About that part. One bit that we have not yet mentioned is um, the way in which his um, effort to overturn the election initially involved a uh, voter fraud hotline that had to be (laughs) shut down due to the immensely predictable amount of prank phone calls they received. That was that was a very genius idea, because, you know, that you know that he personally suggested it because that's the way his 1980s brain thinks about everything. And nobody would tell him that he was wrong. So they set it up thinking, you know, whatever, this will be fine. And then they had to put staffers in charge of it. And they must have been, I mean, I have close to zero sympathy for anybody who chose to work for the Trump administration, but the they must have been subjected to some truly horrendous uh, trolling. Because you know not all of it was was gold standard, not all of it was, shall we say, genius. I, I back to Noah's original point about the uh, dozens of jobs, like three dozen lawyering jobs. That's already more jobs than any politician had created the entire pandemic. So well done to him. You have to applaud giving jobs to very well-paid lawyers, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's, that, that's a Those are the people who need it most. Exactly. <laughs> The, the ultimate underserved demographic, people of law. <laughs> um, before these jokes run out of steam, um, perhaps we should take a break here and we'll come back with more geniuses, more genius awards after this break. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome back to the 2020 Punching Out Genius Awards. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah. Hi, y'all. And Lou. Hey, guys. In the first segment, we gave out our first Lifetime Achievement Award to Rudy Giuliani, the president's lawyer. Now we are moving on to the field of sports, which has, as always, produced a lot of geniuses this year. But we can only honor one with the title of Genius of the Year 2020. Before we can do that, we have to acknowledge the runner-up. Last year's winner, Rob Manfred, Commissioner of Major League Baseball. What did he do this time? He's just a real special guy. 
just all around genius extraordinaire and uh, again a, a potential hall of famer uh in the future um but he did follow through with his uh threat to annihilate the minor league system a lot of teams reshuffled they eliminated teams they i think even the the twins that were the parent team of the Rochester Red Wings they i think they cut their team entirely or threatened threatened all sorts of stuff in order to get rid of their teams. He was responsible for this dumb 60 game season that they had in which they introduced all sorts of very strange rules to quote unquote, speed up the time it takes to play or whatever. And uh, it's just, just, just all around genius. Cannot believe he uh, did so much again this year after winning last year. Just really impressive outing you know you get geniuses i think a lot of the ones that we honor on this show are people who have a really long-term outlook and clearly in rob manfred's case that long-term outlook is baseball not being a thing anymore and if if that's the case as is pretty obvious from his actions this year he's just absolutely nailing it i mean he's putting the finishing touches on a career that over the last few years has been really special, his management of everything from uh, late 20s steroid, minor remaining issues, to electronic sign stealing, to of all the rules to definitely throw out for next year, the universal designated hitter. I mean, if there is something anywhere he can do to make baseball a less popular, less accessible product that will go out of business sooner, Rob Manfred will take that action. It will happen, and you can be sure of that. And that's the kind of certainty that you don't get from every genius. Not every genius is this kind of metronome. <laughs> I, I want to put some concrete terms on this because when you talk about his decision to annihilate the minor leagues, this has been an effort effectively to reduce every team, every major league team's minor league affiliates from five or six straight down to a level four per team, which means a whole bunch of minor league baseball players lose their very low paying jobs and in exchange can now play for zero pay in order to try out for a position on one of the remaining minor league teams. And beyond the impact this has for those players, you know, their career prospects, it also impacts the game of baseball, as you were saying, in the long run by removing any ties that you know dozens of communities across the country have to the major leagues you know the batavia muck, muck dogs here in the rochester area are one of the casualties of this change and that is now a small community that will not have a minor league baseball team to cheer on and that's a lot of kids who will grow up probably without much attachment to the game of baseball as a result it's a short-sightedness that makes Manfred a genius. There is, he does not believe in the idea of having a successful operation 20 years in the future if it will cost him an extra dollar this year. And let's Absolutely. be clear, it, it's not him that it's costing. It's costing the owners. He's yes. uh, Rob Manfred is where he most approaches true genius is in channeling the vision of MLB team owners, all of whom I'm sure are geniuses in their own right. I mean, really, honestly, what you have to look at is Rob Manfred 
clearly wanted a stable multi-year awards deal with punching out. And <laughs> quite frankly, we're just not going to give it to him. We're going to test the market. He's welcome to try free agency, see where else he can, you know, get the the proper respect that he deserves for his unstinting continued performance in service of destroying baseball as a long-term sport. In many years, his performance this year would have won. Um, Again, it's been a very tough year to be a genius. Um, But we have to move on now to the winner in the category of sports, which is not a singular person because it's hard to find one. It's rather the institution of college football, which has even beyond the level of other sports leagues, which have had to make contortions and adjustments to deal with um, both the pandemic and the um, touchy politics of their players' activism in a year that has been marked by anti-police uprisings in cities across the country and athletes speaking out on that issue. The world of college football has somehow been more genius than the rest. It has found ways to bend even the rules it set out for itself in order to have a bastard child of a season. And somehow it has continued doing this. Um, What can we really say to illustrate the genius of college football in 2020? Well, the first thing I'd like to mention, Ryan, is this is from a link that you provided. It's a USA Today article from... September 18th, 2020 by Christine Brennan. It's an opinion. Sorry, not an article. It's a it's an opinion column. Big Ten's decision to play football signals darkest day in conferences sports history. And Brennan throughout of this talks about she draws the distinction between the Big Ten conference, which correct me if I'm wrong, is kind of Midwestern, basically Great Lakes, Michigan, Ohio State, uh, Northwestern. Wisconsin, these are among the schools in the Big Ten, which, believe it or not, does not have 10 teams. It has like 14 or 16. Nice. Okay, that that just have to interrupt. That already is genius levels of organization. Right. So Brennan draws a distinction between the, the Big Ten and conferences like the Pac-12 or the SEC. They're famous for, you know, college football, uh, Omnia Winket. You know, it, it rules over everything. She says in this, I never would have expected the Big Ten presidents to be so shaky, so fearful, so afraid of their own shadow, because she says in another part of the article that, you know, they gave Trump exactly what he wanted when he said they should play football. Right. Just to illustrate what she's referring to, initially, the Big Ten and the Pac-12 had opted not to play football this fall, owing to the obvious, the coronavirus pandemic, even as some of the other conferences went ahead. They eventually reversed this decision under pressure from, among other people, the president. And Brennan continues on to say, I grew up in Big Ten country in the suburbs of Toledo, Ohio, in a family that spent fall Saturdays at Michigan games. I went to Northwestern University, where I received undergraduate and master's degrees. I'm still very involved at NU to this day. In addition to being a professor of practice at the Meadow School of Journalism, I'm a member of Northwestern's 64-person board of trustees. I had no role in any votes or decisions NU made about playing sports in the pandemic. And Brennan cast this as 
you know, this is this is what how offensive it was for the Big Ten to reverse its decision to what she casts as cowardice. And I suppose it is. But one of the one of the things that 2020 really showed about America is that this is a country that lives and dies by its sports more than almost anything. Sports is a civic religion in this country, and people were perfectly willing to accept any argument, uh, no matter what your political stripe is. They were willing to accept any argument that made it okay for there to be sports again in the middle of a pandemic, knowing that athletes who tested positive, who ended up suffering symptoms, were likely to suffer lasting damage, knowing that it flew in the face of everything we knew about how to deal with our global pandemic problem, people still, whether they were left, center, right, didn't matter, showed up for this. And and I'm guilty of that too, I will admit. I watched postseason baseball as well. We caught a couple games. That happened. But the thing that really bothers me is how little actual pushback there was, even from people who claim to be concerned about things like player health and safety and so on, to the idea that maybe we just shouldn't have them this year. I mean, the the NBA and the NHL, you know, more or less managed it by putting themselves in a bubble, but that was never going to be workable with the majority of other sports contests. And what we've instead had to watch is endless back padding from uh, people who might as well, uh, journalists, quote unquote, who might as well just work for the leagues and conferences saying, you know, nobody's tested positive, so this is fine and blah, blah, blah. And no games have been delayed and whatnot, because quite frankly, the majority of people are perfectly happy with that. They have zero problem accepting that this is our reality now, that some games just won't happen because there are a bunch of young men who got sick. And in particular, in the case of college football, these are young men who, as we've said multiple times on this show, and uh, well, in the case of college football, I guess one young woman now, are pushing themselves for no pay, for a half scholarship, for the slight possibility that one day they might get to play that sport for pay. And for that, they are exposing themselves to lethal danger. And the grand majority of us, quite frankly, are fine with that. And that was the real genius in college football, that they knew this wasn't ultimately going to impact their viewership. It wasn't going to impact fandom, that for every Christine Brennan, there were going to be 20 people that would come up with any justification necessary to continue watching as much as they always have. See, I I take a different lesson from that article, which is that the faith she had placed in this institution, these uh, universities, was sorely misguided. Um, She should not have expected that, you know, Ohio State was going to place whatever uh, idea of ethics she had placed upon it higher than the possibility of playing college football. That is what produces revenue for Ohio State as much as, you know, these schools and we've detailed this on the show like to downplay the idea that their sports actually do make money for them the big 10 has been really interesting this year because they have bent over backwards to change their rules to benefit ohio state they had said at the start of this covid shortened season that the team would have to play six games in order to qualify for its conference championship 
Ohio State had games get canceled, including their uh, against their biggest rivals, Michigan, and only played five games. But as soon as that happened, the Big Ten changed its rules to allow Ohio State to play in their conference championship game. And now Ohio State will play in the playoff for the national championship. It's just been one contortion of the rules after another, one way to make all this happen, you know, regardless of previous statements or previous, um, you know, what they had said previously would be best for players. Whatever will make this happen is the logic they will go with. And which in some respects gives them something in common with our first genius of the show, Rudy Giuliani. You know, there's not really an underlying logic. It's whatever serves the end goal. Yeah, I'm complete a complete outsider when it comes to to college sports, especially football, because I just couldn't give less of a crap about any of it. But it just it's didn't surprise me at all the degree to which the hypocrisy existed between what people knew to be good health policies in terms of public health, don't send kids to school, don't play contact sports where everybody's breathing heavily and for an airborne disease, but money. In the end, it all boiled down to money. We couldn't pay people to stay at home during a pandemic. We couldn't pay people to go get an education. Everybody's got to pay for it themselves. Otherwise, the economy completely crashes in every single aspect of it. And it was just another way in which people go be like, huh, I'm really surprised that happened. Of course it did. Our entire system was set up to function one way and one way only. Right. No. And and that's the thing. I do completely agree that ultimately what articles like this show is that people had a faith in conference presidents or commissioners, I guess they're called, um, and whatever that was sorely misplaced. I completely agree with that, that this was always about the money. The last 20 years have been invested very heavily in trying to turn sports in this country, college and professional, into a an apolitical thing, which really it's not. It's a nationalist politics. It's a, it's a very specific form of that, but something that to most Americans appears apolitical. And this was the first year in a long time that you had organized groups of athletes actually speaking out about the issues of the year. So police brutality, for example, uh, we, I, I think we actually talked a bit about it on the show, you know, the, the NBA protests. And then we talked about baseball and soccer, uh, being involved and obviously, uh, college and professional football have had pieces in that story as well. But I think, well, Here's the thing. So inexcusably, despite the fact that we've had them on the show several times, we've actually never quoted from uh, punching out guest host Zoe's website, Victory Press. Mm -hmm. But they recently wrote a piece, which full disclosure, I was supposed to read before it came out and didn't. They begin by saying 2020 will probably long be remembered as a year of reckoning in North American professional sports. But it will leave behind the question of what that reckoning was actually about or if anything came of it. And later adds something that I think is is very important because it's something that I kind of learned over the course of this year about most people, um, possibly including me. Because sports is part of the entertainment industry, we are encouraged on one hand to see sports as something, quote unquote, not that deep. 
But on the other hand, sports have become deeply embedded in Western culture as a type of civic religion, as part of both community and individual identities. And um, there is something very much to that. I think these conferences were always going to bend. Every conference was going to be the SEC at some point. Every league was going to play, regardless of how many people they were feeding into the meat grinder. And I know that these leagues ultimately get most of their money from their TV deals and whatnot, but they get that money because they are profitable products and people know that. And the reason they are profitable products is that ultimately they have a base, they have customers and it's for understandable reasons. I'm not saying it's not, but this was a year when I think we should have known better than to expect people like Rob Manfred and people like whatever the heck the Big Ten commissioner's name is, because who cares? And uh, people like, you know, why were, why was anyone putting faith in Roger Goodell to do the right thing in 2020? We should have known better. We honestly should have known better this year, and we didn't. And that's fine, but we have to accept the fact that for whatever reason, for an understandable desire for entertainment, because we were all locked in our houses, because we believed the press that the leagues were pushing out, because God knows there was a ton of it, we decided that it was okay to do this. And quite frankly, as somebody who, you know, like I work in a school, we have sports teams, we have had contact sports, they've been playing soccer this whole time. And it seems like that was part and parcel of it, that the justification that if the NFL can have their game, even though, what is it, like all of the Tennessee Titans, literally all of them were sick, or that right now as we're recording this, the Detroit Lions have no idea who the heck is going to coach on Saturday. Even despite that, it, it, people saw that and said, well, but if they can persevere, so can we. And I think there's an important lesson to take there that they w- that power will use things like this to distract and mute and mollify us by trying to tell us that things are okay, that the circus will still go on, that there will still be games. Uh, You you mentioned sports being a sort of civic religion in America. And I think even in normal years, college football coaches are the closest thing we have to fire-breathing zealots of that civic religion. Mm -hmm. These are people who do not have a healthy relationship with the sport in any way. Um, And while I didn't, we couldn't single out one person as a genius for the sake of this award. I do want to take some time to talk about Dabo Swinney, the coach of and his boys in the swamp. Let's do it. The coach of Clemson's football team, one of the best football teams in the country. It should be noted Um, to quote from a, an article in Defector just last month about a game they had that was canceled with Florida State University. Quote, here's the sequence of events. A player on Clemson was grody with flu-like symptoms in the week leading up to the game. Tests, we are told, showed that this player was negative for the coronavirus, and so this oozing player was allowed to practice with his teammates, and indeed traveled with the team from Clemson to Tallahassee without quarantine restrictions. Then, Friday night, The player's latest test result came back positive. Florida State administrators, noting that a symptomatic player who was now known to be infected with the coronavirus had 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 close contact with basically 
Clemson's entire football program made a decision to cancel the game. And as it turns out, Dabo Swinney, head coach of Clemson, saw cowardice in that decision. He saw this as Florida State being afraid to play his mighty Clemson Tigers for fear of losing to them, which inevitably Florida State would have done. Clemson is very good at football. But it's that sort of reaction, that sort of um, tunnel vision in a way that really sets college football apart. It really produces genius in this respect because these are people who cannot think about anything other than the next game on their schedule. Um, Nick Saban, head coach of Alabama, has famously been upset about playing in national championship games because it means he has one less week to recruit for the next season. They do not have a healthy relationship with the sport, and we have them to thank for this wonderful podcast content. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, so normal. (laughs) We'll be back after this break with our last genius of the show. You're listening to Punching Out on Wayo 104.3. You can subscribe to the show or listen to past episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and other podcast apps. We are also on Facebook and Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Now back to the show. Welcome back to the Punching Out Genius Awards for 2020. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah. Hello. And Lou. Hey, guys. In this last 15-minute segment, we want to talk about a service that provides only 10-minute, well, I should say provided, uh, 10-minute programming. It went by the name of Quibi, and it's very possible that you don't have any idea what it is because it came and went very quickly despite a great deal of money being put behind it. Noah, do you have a succinct way of explaining what Quibi was? We should, right? We Mm -hmm. have 15 minutes left, which is roughly the amount of time a Quibi show took per episode. It was an attempt to reduce television or, or, or narrative to 10 to 15 minute bursts because that's what people wanted. They needed to capture the uh, commuter and a millennial always on his phone by giving them something to watch that they didn't already have. Yeah. Somehow they thought that our existing forms of content really weren't suited to the modern age and millennials viewing habits. They saw the rise of platforms like uh, TikTok and thought millennials want things to be shorter. So we're going to produce these uh, shows, television shows effectively that exist in 10 minute chunks, 10 minute episodes and that will fit the modern attention span. And by the way, you'll only be able to watch it on your phone. I I was about to say, if this was meant as an own on millennials for having a short attention span, then it is actually unironically genius. <laughs> Personally, I don't think Jeffrey Katzenberg w- uh, meant it that way. He did not. He He's uh, not that kind of genius. Sadly, he's the other kind. Jeffrey Katzenberg is one of the uh, leaders of this project, was one of the leaders of this project, along with uh, 
Meg Whitman, who handled the financial side of things. Katzenberg is a big Hollywood producer with, you know, a pedigree in the industry. And so along with the $2 billion that they pumped into this, people were expecting Quibi to be a big success. And then it wasn't. Right out of the gate, Quibi had a very small following. People did not want to download this app to watch their very stupid programming. And this is despite the fact that Quibi was just saturating the market. I I don't think we ever came up with a baseball comparison for college football, but Quibi might be the Jeff Francoeur of geniuses this year. Came out very strong out of the gate in terms of just saturating the market with what it was doing. And then we all figured out what it was and now it sucks. I, to be honest, I didn't know what Quibi was until I heard people making fun of it when it went under. Which was within six months. Right. Yeah. I'm also one of those people, which is like an absurd amount of money to blow on something that's going to blow up in six months to me, a normal person. But I'm also one of those people that I'm not going to download an app on my phone unless you for like physically force me to. Like, I, I just, I'm not interested in more apps. I don't care. And the fact that this, they made a, a entertainment platform that was entirely an app based that you couldn't take screenshots from, um, that they paid Reese Witherspoon $6 million to do the voiceover for a cheetah, like, slay queen documentary <laughs> is just stupid. It's, very suit nation. super genius super genius levels also we need to mention by the way that the head of creative talent acquisition at quibi is married to reese witherspoon <laughs> in case like n- just to add a little bit of wrinkle to this story right because the thing with quibi is like such a classic marketing story right mm-hmm. everything was Everything was dependent on this concept hitting it big somehow, which it was never going to. And literally anybody could have told Jeffrey Katzenberg this, but he was so insistent, like he, uh, according to one of these possibly apocryphal stories, he once told somebody to make it French like Botticelli. You know, when you're somebody who says things like that and you're like fine with it, Nobody's going to tell you no, uh, not when you have millions and millions of dollars to your name. And so he was allowed to continue this, quite frankly, like fever dream into, uh, well, one of the funniest stories of 2020. And we we really needed funny stories in 2020. It certainly produced more laughs than any of their shows could. Um, uh, now, got him. Now, the reason we're talking about Quibi on Punching Out is not just because it's a bad idea that failed spectacularly. One of the ingredients in this idea is the fact that due to Hollywood union contracts with the people who, uh, you know, behind the scenes on television and film production, shows of this length, programs of this length, I guess you could call them videos at this point rather than shows even, are not subject to the standard union pay structure. There are explicit amounts set out for programs between, you know, 20 and 30 minutes long, like a, like a normal sitcom would be between, you know, 30 and an hour, like a drama or, or between feature length movies. You know, if you're working on one of those projects, people know what you have to be paid for that. But if you're working on a 10 minute episode, even though 
much of Quibi was, you know, thought of as four hour programs that are just broken into 10 minute chunks, you have no expectation of a standard pay rate. And the end product of that is that staffers could expect to make $10 an hour less working for Quibi than they could for similar projects. So it's a wonderful example of a tech company finding the loophole, the exemption in labor rules that will allow them to skim off just enough, you know, provided the product has an audience, which Quibi did not. Yeah. And that's kind of what they like set themselves up as, is a tech company. They wanted the the shiny office, like 49,000 square foot office. The, the, Katzenberg and Meg Whitman, the uh, CEO of Hewlett Packard, drove it into the ground almost. Like they f- argued about how the build the office building looked and the lobby and everything like that, and they s- shelled out what was it standard pay plus twenty percent more to producers to make shows up for their thing, all while underpaying all of the actual labor that goes in to making a show. So all the, the grunt work and, and that, anything that was a big name that had talent guild protection got paid way more than usual, not way more, but, but certainly above market rate or whatever, all while undercutting anybody who actually is in charge of physically making the stuff that they're selling. Which is exactly, as we've said on this show, what every other tech company does. The ultimate... and. Jeffrey Katzenberg, I mean, the other geniuses that we've talked about on this show, you know, were geniuses because they, uh, in in Andrew Cuomo's case, he hearkened back to his predecessors with the colored zones uh, levels thingy. Uh, Rudy Giuliani, of course, is a genius because he was capable of just a month of sustained explosive performance. (laughs) Uh, College football as an institution, just incredibly consistent in the abuse and uh, destruction of the, of, of young men in this country. And now with Jeffrey Katzenberg, we have one of the true innovators of the game. I mean, ever since he was at uh, Disney getting called golden retriever by Michael Eisner, who himself uh, would get a genius award if this show had been out in like 1995, (laughs) you know, from, from that to DreamWorks to uh, all of the things that he's done over the course of his career. I mean, Katzenberg is a real, yeah, he's, he's one of the creative minds in genius. And the thing about that is that sometimes you really annoy a lot of traditionalists. And in the case of Katzenberg, One thing that you get from the articles uh, that we read about Quibi is that pretty much everybody in the established Hollywood structure hates his guts. And he almost seems to have, number one, they offered money to the studios. This is part of what Louise was talking about. They needed the studios to be on board. They didn't want to have to pay off or, or otherwise have to deal with them. So they let them invest as a way of getting them off their back. and. What they proceeded to do with that is, in many cases, by reaching out to these producers and actors and talent and overpaying them, what they managed to create is a small but apparently very, very hardy class of defenders. So like the paranormal activity guy, Jason Bloom or Blum, I have no idea, or somebody named uh, Vina Sud were both quoted in one of these articles as incredibly complimentary of Jeffrey Katzenberg and of Quibi. 
and folks, I mean, that that's the kind of friendship that, well, I, I guess you can buy, actually. Very mm-hmm. much so. And the end result of all of this effort, all of this money being spent, is that they had something like 1.5 million subscribers, and that was before the free three-month trial ran out. And when you compare that to Netflix, which has literally 100 times that amount, you know, there really isn't a competition there. There is no way that it could recoup the money that they made. And thus, you know, it was inevitable that this service was going to end sooner rather than later. Among the many problems it had beyond the fact that nobody had a commute anymore and were not watching things on their phones anymore was the fact that their proprietary software, which would allow people to watch shows in vertical or horizontal layout, they were being sued because that was someone else's software to begin with. Yeah. Turnstile with a Y. Yeah. Stupid. I'm sorry, genius. This was doomed from the start in many ways. They have, over the course of the last several months before eventually shutting down, you know, try to pin the blame on the pandemic. And who could have foreseen that people wouldn't want to watch things on their phones? Um, they they even now have a TV, had a TV app, you know, so that you could watch their show like a normal show, you know, which removes the whole point of the service. But I really want to cite this statement they made on the occasion of Quibi's demise on October 21st. Reading from a Gizmodo article, in an open letter, Jeffrey Katzenberg and Meg Whitman confirmed the news that they are winding down the business and looking to sell its content and technology assets. Quote, Quibi is not succeeding, likely for one of two reasons, because the idea itself wasn't strong enough to justify a standalone streaming service or because of our timing. Unfortunately, we will never know. (laughs) Sure, we won't. But we suspect it's a combination of the two. Oh, yeah. Oh, Mm -hmm. comorbidity. Oh, so sad. So so what you're saying is it was it was a multitudinous kind of genius. There was just no way to know what caused Quibi's failure. That's good. It's uh, I I can't uh, wait until we decide. Have Doctor House to understand what. <laughs> oh my god! So can it wasn't you imagine? Yeah, but can you imagine watching House in 50, like ten minute segments? Dear, that is what House was like. The yeah. cliffhangers were. That's the weird part to me that they thought that this was an innovation. Like every show was doing the thing of let's have story beats at ten to twelve minutes because that's how often commercial breaks are uh, are beginning to happen. Great, I'm a dad now. I just made that. I just don't understand why they thought anybody, even the you know short attention millennials, would like watching something like that. Like if you're you're honestly going to tell me that you're going to get enough plot to keep me interested and engaged in something, so I watch it, wait a day or two or eight hours, whatever, and then watch it again for another ten minutes. Like who can actually follow a story like that? Apparently, millennials. Actually, I'm told that I'm I'm told that children and teenagers now can't follow anything longer than five minutes. So, you know, that that's the future we're <laughs> heading towards. Maybe, uh, again, Jeffrey Katzenberg just ahead of his time as a genius. They, they were aimed too long. That's right. Yeah, it, I guess so. Yeah, uh, they, 
Well, in fact, Quibi, I think, is is too uh, is too long a name. The next one will have to be like B. It is short for Quick Bites. Um, yes, because I did the, know that. Katzenberg's original idea for a name, Omakase, wasn't thought of as catchy. That refers to like uh, the high-priced sushi that a chef selects. For some reason, they didn't think that name would market well. Right, because the name he had before then was New TV. And it turned out that there was already a company named that. Uh, just missed it. Yeah. It, you know, billionaires are all basically the same kind of genius. They, it doesn't matter who it is. If it's Elon Musk. They all or, think they're the first to a solution. They really Regardless do. of how many times that solution has been done. Yeah. Or like how usually it's, I'm going to do this thing, but I'm going to make it private instead of public. That's that's their genius move there. It it doesn't matter how many times that we have a billionaire who does that sort of dumb garbage. It just it still kind of boggles my mind that we let them get away with it and that we let people like Katzenberg rely and decide that they need to have a guaranteed success. So they're going to throw a whole bunch of money on you know stupid artificial enameling basically on a product in order to make it shiny and then the expectation that we're going to buy it well lou if it makes you feel better meg whitman is being considered as a member of the biden administration for secretary of commerce Uh, i'm gonna break something (laughs) um before noah does that um unfortunately like quibi our time is being cut short here Um, for this year's genius we've really witnessed the the full expanse of what geniuses are capable of in this year unlike any other hopefully next year will be you know even more genius to look forward to why would you want something like that <laughs> how else are we going to have a, another genius awards uh, that's true we, yeah, we yeah. have to keep popping ourselves. The, the <laughs> only good thing about years like this is that we get to have genius. You know what? I can't even finish that sentence. <laughs> uh, you know what? 2021, the year Elon Musk uh, wins an award. Again. It's going to be his year. He's tried so I, hard. I think we're going to make it a running bit that he doesn't. I don't know. Well, I, honestly, we should have considered the the name he gave to his child. That, Genius that award and running there. short on time. Let's you know, go. This is, this is not a full-length show. This is a Quibi program. Um, <laughs> for this week and this year, I'm Ryan. I'm Noah. And I'm Lou. This was Punching Out. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.